All right, let's go. Hi, welcome to the Flawed Theology Podcast. I'm Phil. And I'm Susie. And we're asking the question, if your theology were wrong, wouldn't you want to know? This is our first episode, and we are so excited to be here. In this episode, we will talk about how we got here and what we hope to accomplish as we discuss our journeys away from faith and into logic and reason. And you might have noticed from the title of this episode, the one with the introductions, that it has a little familiar format. We uh, discovered in our conversations that we're both a little bit of friends psychos. So we thought it might be fun to make the episodes follow the friends format. Lighten up the mood a little since we're talking sometimes about heavy topics. Want to keep it a little bit fun with Friends episode titled. So if you've got suggestions for episode titles, feel free to send them in. <laughs> I think everybody can relate to Friends episodes. Pretty much everybody has seen them. Yes, it's one of those things that if you're the age that we are, which we won't tell you, that nope. you've seen Friends and you're probably re-watching them again on Netflix. So, so you might have noticed uh, from the beginning our tagline. Susie, why don't you tell us a little bit about where that tagline came from and, and why it's important? Yeah, so I love our tagline. Um, I, I made it up and I put it on my blog. And really what it means, if, in case you missed it, it's if your theology were wrong, wouldn't you want to know? Because really everything boils down to that one question. If it weren't true, would you want to know? It's a really telling question. I think if, you, if you're having a conversation with somebody, just ask them, uh, would you want to know? And if they say yes, they may be more receptive to seeing evidence that could disprove Christianity. After all, if it's not true, they would want to know. If they say no, then that also says a lot. Uh, maybe not, it's not the right time to pursue that line of reasoning with that person. And also it helps that person to acknowledge to themselves that they have a confirmation bias. But honestly, I think a lot of people would fall right in the middle and say, I honestly don't know if I would want to know because it's scary. Yeah, for sure. I, th I think it it's a good leading question that you can really find out what kind of conversation you're potentially about to have. Because if the person's not interested in finding out about if they're wrong, then there's not really a huge point in even having a big conversation because you know it's going to take a turn for the worse, most likely. And yeah, these conversations are hard enough anyway. So if you are going to have an argument with somebody unless you really like arguing, like sometimes I do. But a lot of times with stuff like this, I don't really want to get in an argument about it because you're not ever going to change anyone's mind by arguing. So yeah, I think it's a great tagline and hopefully it makes sense to people. And hopefully it makes people think. Yeah, that's definitely the goal. So Phil, how did we decide to do this podcast? This was your idea. So you talk about it. <laughs> it was a little bit my idea. Um, I, I've actually wanted to do a podcast um, for a little while now, just ever since I started the deconstruction journey and been reading and listening to other podcasts, I thought, oh, this would be something fun to do. But how I met you and kind of decided to do this with you was I was a, a fan of your blog, Flawed Theology, and have read a bunch of the posts and we've interacted on a couple of different Facebook groups. And so that's kind of how I was like, hey, she seems cool. And then the, I guess the real pushing over point was you reached out after reading one of my blog posts and had some grammar and editing suggestions, <laughs> which 
grammar bitch right here. Yeah, which is awesome because I was I, I like to pride myself on being mostly intelligent and being able to write in complete sentences. You um, are. Trust me, you are. I know. Thank you, private school education. It did teach me something occasionally, except for how to be indoctrinated as a child. But I did learn a few things, but I thought it was uh, incredibly gutsy on your part <laughs> to to offer those kind of suggestions. And it was also very helpful because, I mean, I think it's important when you're trying to convey a story that you do it in a way that makes sense and isn't confusing. So good grammar is a good part of that. So it is a good part. Yeah. Well, you know, I was on the fence about even contacting you about that because I people, you know, some people react differently to criticism even constructive criticism. But I thought, you know what? He's a blogger. I'm a blogger. I would want to know if I had some things in my blog posts that were wrong. And they were just innocent typos, you know? So I figured, what's the harm? Right. And it ended up getting me a podcast. So there you go. So not too much harm done. I could change the tagline to my blog to, if my grammar were wrong, would you want to know? <laughs> wow. <laughs> and clearly I see did. See what you did there. Yeah. See, so, you know. It all came it, back around. Yeah. It's a good thing. So so when I asked you about this, what was your thought about it and how did you come to agree to this madness that we're going to attempt to do? So when you first asked me, I thought, well, that sounds awesome, but I don't have time for that. And then as I kept thinking about it, I thought, well, what am I going to do? Like the next time somebody asks me to do a podcast, I'll do that one. There's, this isn't going to happen again. <laughs> this is probably the only time. So uh, I talked to my husband and we decided, yeah, we could probably do this. Um, so here we are. And gosh, I have to say, it's so funny that you say you were fanboying my blog because when I started it, I didn't think anybody would actually read it. You know, it started just for me to um, put my thoughts on a page, basically. So that's pretty cool that you were actually reading it and that other people are reading it. And I liked your blog, too, because you and I come from very different backgrounds. And your deconversion story was so thought provoking for me to see from your perspective how you came from. You came from really deep within Christianity. and. <laughs> yeah. You got out of it and you overcame your indoctrination. You overcame everything that you had in your life that was against you. And that was a, a really cool perspective for me. So that's why I liked your blog. Oh, Everybody well, should thanks. go check it out. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. Yeah, we'll put both of our blogs uh, in the show notes so you guys can read those. And uh, Susie's is definitely more prolific than mine. She's she's better about getting posts up than I am. So that's what... That's why I stole her name for the podcast because it had a better ring too. So, <laughs> so tell uh, tell the people a little bit about yourself. Just you know, whatever you feel comfortable in sharing about your yeah. personal life and who you are and all that fun stuff. Okay, so I'm married with two kids. We live on the East Coast. I grew up right outside of DC, and from a very early age, I've always loved science. So I ended up getting my degree in cell biology and molecular genetics, um, but I don't do any research or lab work. I'm not a scientist. I, I work in the data side, so working with quality control and data collection for research. So as far as hobbies, I like to read a lot. I like to bike ride. I like to be outside, but only in the summertime. I hardly <laughs> ever go outside in the winter. And I really like to learn Spanish. Uh, I just love language learning. It's, it's really fun for me. Uh, so what about you, Phil? Yeah, I'm uh, married to it's actually my second marriage, and that was actually going through a divorce was kind of, I wouldn't say part of the deconstructing progress uh, process, but it was definitely kind of mixed in there. Uh, so now I have a, a, a new wife, and we're married and have four kids all together. So we have a blended family. We live here in uh, semi-rural Virginia. It's um, not totally the boonies, but clo as close to the boonies as I 
want to be. Um, I have a mostly worthless degree in clinical psychology that I don't use in my current career field, which is uh, doing systems administration on computing systems. So um, as far as hobbies, my new, my new obsession is yo-yos. So I started throwing yo-yos and I found out that it's like a pretty intense hobby. Like <laughs> it's a whole what, world. What does that mean that you, what do you mean? Like you do tricks? Oh yeah. Tricks. And you know, I, I'm on like Reddit pages where I watch other people do tricks and then wish that I could do them. And then the biggest problem is of course that now I spend my expendable income on, on yo-yos, you know, which makes my wife real happy. And I carry one around on a little belt clip. So it's, it's real nerdy. <laughs> That's not nerdy at all. Yeah. It's, it's high level <laughs> nerdy, you know, and, and the fun thing is, is when you're on a, a yo-yo blog, you're mostly on there with a bunch of like 14 year olds, I think. So it's, it's pretty hilarious. So I have to say that is the weirdest hobby I've ever heard a grown yeah. man have. So congratulations on that. Yeah. So if you're looking for high levels of maturity from this side of the microphone, you may or may not get it depending on what we're <laughs> talking about. So, um, but yeah, I, I like doing that. Um, I try to maintain a, a fitness routine. Uh, we got obsessed with a fitness company called Echelon. So now we have like a spin bike and a rower and a fitness mirror. And so our whole downstairs looks like Planet Fitness minus the purple. So it's a fun time down there. So wow. That's impressive. My wife works out more than I do because um, she was an elite athlete in her college. and Right. She was a swimmer, right? Swimmer. So, so I think working out is in her blood. So she has to do it to stay alive. I do it because I probably just need to. So, <laughs> same. So, I don't think it's super fun, but it's something you just got to do. Yeah. And there's a community aspect to that fitness thing that we do, which is kind of fun too. So, um, that's been a nice replacement for going to church. You just go sweat True. on the bike. So, so, that's fun too. So, so speaking of church and faith traditions, what's a little bit about your faith tradition and how did you come to deconstruct from that? Right. So this will be the short version. Uh, I have the long version on my blog and we'll link to it. But I was raised in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, which is the most conservative type of Lutheran that there is. Uh, they believe in very literal Bible interpretation. So creation actually happened in six days and the flood happened. And all those Old Testament stories actually happened. And my family is all very, very faithful. They, they're just unquestioning believers. And I never was like that. I, From a very early age, I remember feeling very unconvinced about everything. Maybe not when I was like age 10 and under, but definitely starting around confirmation time. And even my pastor at one, at one point said, well, if you don't believe this, you can't get confirmed. I guess I was asking too many questions. <laughs> and I just, I spiraled. Like I remember thinking at that point, I, I can't keep asking questions because I can't be the only person in my family who doesn't get confirmed. I mean, that would have destroyed my parents. Right. So anyway, I basically just kind of went through the motions of going to church and doing youth group and everything. And I remember thinking, well, when I'm an adult, I'll probably believe this will be more important to me. This will be a priority. And it never just, it just never happened. But I continued going through the motions and I really tried. Um, when I was in college, I was in IV, which is like InterVarsity, which is the Christian group. And I did all these Bible studies and I talked to people about like science versus the Bible because that was a big thing for me. And uh, I never really found the answers I was looking for, but I read all those apologetic books, hoping to find answers. And I still came out of them feeling super unconvinced. Huh. So um, in college, I met my now husband who is a Catholic, was a Catholic. He converted to Lutheran when we got married. And what I really liked about him among other things, is that he was a very low-key Christian. So <laughs> he didn't 
he didn't require a lot from me. He didn't talk about it at all. Like he never read the Bible. He never really prayed. It was just kind of something he was raised in. So I thought, oh, that's great. I love that. He's not <laughs> going to, you know, make me grow in my faith or anything. Right. <laughs> but but we both continued to go through the motions. In our 20s, we had some kids. Uh, we had two kids. We, you know, went to church every Sunday. We took them to Sunday school. And somewhere around my 30s is when I started stopped really caring about going through the motion so much and stopped caring about what my family would think. And I really wanted to start thinking more for myself. And so that's how I started the the journey of finding out if Christianity really was true. And I found out that it's not. <laughs> um, <laughs> surprise, surprise. That's why we're here. Right. <laughs> when I say the journey, that's there's a lot of detail that goes into that. To keep this brief, I won't go into that. But that's basically how it happened. And after I totally came out of it, I found out what the term deconstruction was and that there was a whole movement that had done exactly what I had done. And I didn't know about it until after, which was great because then there was this whole community there waiting for me to support me and I could help support them. And um, on the blog, I have more posts about how I told my husband and how my family found out. So that might be interesting for some people to read. It sounds like you really took the logic and reason route of like really trying to figure out if it was true or not as opposed to like something sticking out to you as, you know, I just don't like this or I'm trying to, you know, I want to live my life however I want. I got to get rid of this Christianity. How can I do it? You were actually trying to do it the best that you could. Because I thought if this is true, this is the most important thing in your life, right? Because if, if it's true, you should be trying to get to heaven. You should be trying to truly believe. But right. I knew I didn't truly believe. And so I, I had to either find out a way to truly believe or just find out that it's all BS. Yeah, and you probably figured out that you actually can't force yourself to believe something that you don't believe. <laughs> Definitely not. Yeah, you cannot like, do that, no matter how hard you try. Yeah, that's one of those things people say. It was like, oh, I'll just, I'll just power through. And then eventually you get to the point where you can't power through. Yeah, my, my story is kind of the opposite of that story. I was born into Christianity, literally, like quite literally. My parents became Christians six months before I was born. And then I was just in church from the get-go, from in utero on Christian school, Christian college, Bible institutes, you know, the whole nine yards of indoctrination and being like fully vested in Christianity, did ministry, did worship leaders, did camp pastor, did collegiate ministry. I did. I was a collegiate minister for Baptist Student Union, which is similar to InterVarsity Press, but or InterVarsity, but the Baptist version, uh, InterVarsity tries to keep it non-denominational, which, you know, is just code for Baptist, but you don't want to put the word out there. So, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I went through that whole, I mean, I was in deep, um, and I didn't really ever question it. I don't think my, my dad was a pastor at one point later in my life, like later in my childhood. So I was a preacher's kid. So I had that additional pressure and some crazy stuff happened, which is in my deconstruction story, which is extremely long. If you have, you know, a lot of time to read, you're welcome to read it for sure. But it goes into detail about childhood and being a preacher's kid and all the pressure that goes along with that. So I never really questioned it. I just went along with it. It all made sense for me. It was literally the only thing I ever knew. So when I started having questions and doubts about things, they really were confusing. And they, they stemmed while I was in ministry at a church working as a, a worship leader. 
the church had found some new way that they thought that they were going to do ministry. And it was this cool emergent church movement, which I don't know if you are familiar with, but it was, it was a more experiential way of people doing worship. And I was like, Oh, this is really cool, but it wasn't like a program. And this church that I was a part of was trying to make it a program. And I was bucking with the pastor about this saying, Hey, like if we're going to be Christians, you know, we can't, this isn't like a way to proselytize. We have to be like real about it. And he wasn't really down with that message. He was like, no, we're going to make it a program. <laughs> and I was like, so that was the beginning of my deconstruction journey, I think, which of course I didn't know that word. I just knew that I didn't like how that felt and wound up leaving that church and ended up at another church that was much more progressive, got kind of hooked into the idea of social justice and making a difference in the world instead of going out and just preaching Jesus to people. And so that was very refreshing, and I, I took the whole idea that God was love as my primary theology and philosophy. And that was great for a good while, probably a good five or six years. It really felt good to live that way, and I was involved in a lot of social justice causes and fundraising and doing all kind of stuff that was, I thought, putting more love into the world until I realized I'm not sure that God really is loving, and then I had never really thought that God wasn't loving until I started reading some things in the Bible and, and it conflicted with other things in the Bible. And I'm like, huh, that doesn't seem like God is love, <laughs> you know? So had you not read the Old Testament stories before until that point? Oh, no, I had read through the Bible probably more times than most people read Harry Potter. So what stopped you from seeing the, the Old Testament God as unloving before? My best explanation for that would be indoctrination. Like you're not taught to question. You're really not even allowed to question. And if you do question, the idea of questioning was just with the idea that you already knew the answer. So you weren't really looking for the answer. You were just looking for confirmation of what your pastor or your church told you. So yeah, the story of the flood to me was all about the rainbow and God's promise to never flood the earth again. I never thought about how ridiculous it was that God only saved eight people out of the entire living world mm -hmm. yeah. and he flooded everyone else, <laughs> you know, that, that never occurred Babies. to me. Yeah. That never occurred to me as something unloving, you know, to me it was, and, and there's, you know, tons of stories in the old Testament that are, are worse than that probably that are more violent and, and graphic. And they never, never jumped out to me as, as odd. I just thought that, well, these are just things that happened. So yeah, I started to question the idea of God being loving and that was really what started pulling it apart. And then, then the Trump phenomenon kind of happened in 2016. And I saw how Christians responded to that. And I started saying, this isn't what I want to be. Like, this is not Christian to me. So that kind of sent me down the spiral even further. And then the final nail in the coffin, I think, was the January 6th insurrection, you know, where I saw people marching on the Capitol carrying Bibles and crosses. And I thought to myself, that's not what the Bible and the cross is about until I thought about it some more and said, oh, wait, maybe it is. And that's not what I want to be a part of. <laughs> and, Interesting. So, and so that's kind of really where I got to the point where I was like, I can't believe in this God anymore, you know, and, and I'm still going to live my life the way I live it, um, still be a good person, be a good human, try to put more love into the world. But I don't need God necessarily to do that. So about the, the insurrection. I've seen a lot of Christians say, well, those are the, the bad people. That's people being sinful. Oh, but you're saying that instead of the people being sinful, they're sort of accurately reflecting what's in the Bible. 
Yeah, and that that's kind of how I felt. It was like, oh, I thought that the anomaly was the militaristic, nationalistic Christian, but really that's lines up perfectly with kind of the God of the Bible. And so that's when I was like, well, I can't believe in that God because the God I wanted to believe in was one of love and one of like caring and rescuing and salvation and all that kind of stuff. And then when you realize that that's not really what God is about, then it, it's you start to look at people that are militant Christians as not an anomaly, but the norm. And then, you, then you're the anomaly as the, the quote unquote liberal Christian. And I remember that when I first started going to that progressive church, which also had a woman pastor. So, oof, you know, a woman, a woman pastor, the way I grew up, my parents thought I was already on the highway to hell when they heard about that. So, so it was a downward spiral from there. But, but yeah, when I started discovering this loving God idea, it felt really good. But then once I kind of realized I didn't need the God part to be loving, then it was kind of an easy break. Yeah, I think a lot of people come to that realization once they shed the God belief that they can still be a loving person and a good person. And they're just still the same person they always were. They were a good person because they were a good person, not because of their belief. Right. And when you grow up the way I grew up, there was no such thing as a good person because conservative, independent, fundamentalist, Baptist theology is like, we're all sinners your righteousness as filthy rags. The only reason you can be good is because of God. So when I met people who were genuinely good that were atheists or Muslims or any other religion, I was like, wait, how could that be? <laughs> you know, because I had never been taught that. I never thought there could be a good person that wasn't a Christian because that's the only way you could be good. Fascinating. Pretty wild stuff. Okay, so let's pivot, and I want to ask you, pivot, Phil, what... Pivot, yeah, I was wondering pivot. if you'd pick up on that. Oh, come on. That's a that's a gimme. <laughs> well, okay, so fans, we might slip in some Friends references here and there, so if you have sharp ears, you might catch them. Yes, it, it, it could turn into a drinking game or something. It could, it could. So what do you want to accomplish with this podcast, Phil? Well, for me, I think it's just providing a place where we can challenge people to think critically and really to identify the biases, the confirmation bias that they have when they try to explain their faith. Because if you really think about your faith critically and without using the Bible to prove the Bible, then you can't support it. It's circular reasoning. It's And the, the cognitive dissonance you have to have to say that God is loving, but then he also sends people to hell you know, that's just one example, is is insane. And I don't mean insane in the clinical sense. I just mean that it's so far-fetched that you can't, you can't rationally defend Christianity when you identify that you have a confirmation bias and that your, your logic is just flawed, <laughs> you know. So once you identify that your theology is flawed, then the choice is, well, what are you going to do with that once you start to identify the flaws? I totally agree with that. That's basically everything I had in my mind too. The only thing I want to add is I like to find places in the Bible where you can just poke a hole through it and you can kind of like look behind the curtain. You poke a hole, yeah. look behind the curtain and see the man-made nature of it. There's yeah. lots of different ways you can do that. And I've written about a few of them on my blog so far, but I, I kind of want to do some episodes where we just look at that and we point out how the Bible is inconsistent in this way, or this po couldn't possibly have happened this way, or this is historically inaccurate. Just to kind of shed light on on that whole way of going about it. Yeah, for sure. It's and, and until you really open yourself up to 
being willing to poke a few holes, then you're not really on the path of anything anyway, except for just being blindly indoctrinated to what you already believe. Actually, a pastor of the church that I went to most recently was a big part of my deconstruction because the very first sermon she gave in the church that she was a pastor of, she said, you know, God is big enough for you to pull at the bricks in your faith wall. And I was like, oh, so she gave me the permission to start pulling at the bricks. And she's like, it, you know, a lot of people are afraid to pull at the bricks in their faith wall because they think the whole wall is going to fall down. And so I was like, okay. And I wasn't at that point thinking about trying to pull the wall down. I just had questions. Um, so to me, that was refreshing that I could pull at the bricks of the wall. But a lot of people are not willing to pull at the bricks on their wall because they're terrified of what will happen. And rightly so. If you spent 30 years believing something and all of a sudden you start poking at it, and then the curtain falls down and you see that it's just a little googly-eyed person that man invented, you know, then that's going to be earth-shattering for a lot of people. Totally, yes. And it kind of along that same vein, this podcast is not about disparaging Christians or making fun of them or calling them crazy. It's nothing like that. I have Christians in my life who I love. My whole family is Christian. They're awesome. I have a really good relationship with my family. My uncle is in the clergy. My best friend is studying to become a priest. I mean, that is not what we're about here. So if that's what you're looking for, uh, go away. But <laughs> I think, um, like Phil said, what we're trying to do is expose what you don't learn in church and to teach people how to critically think. Maybe teach isn't the right word. Yeah. Encourage you to, th to think. Encourage. Your, that's good. To think for yourself as opposed to just believing what someone's told you. And and I guess a lot of Christians would say, well, I don't just blindly believe because I went to many churches that said, hey, don't take my word for it. Go to the Bible and look for it yourself. And that's exactly what confirmation bias is. The, the pastor says something from the Bible, and then you go to the Bible and try to prove what the pastor said from the Bible. Well, that doesn't make any sense, you know, because if, no. you're, if you're trying to prove something, the way do you prove it in any other part of the universe is by external validation and external sources. And you don't get that in Christianity. The external sources that they give, you don't really find out that they're not actual sources in real history. Like when I was in some churches that were very much into exegetical verse by verse going through the Bible, they would always cite the works of Josephus, who was a historian that was alive around the time of Jesus. So I never read the works of Josephus. I just took the pastor's word that, oh, there was a contemporary of Jesus who validated all this stuff that's in the Gospels. Well, guess what? Josephus, in all of his writings, mentions the name Jesus, I think, one time. And half of that was an interpolation. Right. And it wasn't even about Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth, he never says that he died on the cross. He never says, like, all the stuff that supposedly was supported by this historian, he never actually supported. And he also wasn't a contemporary of Jesus. He came like hundreds of years later as well. So it's like, right. you know, right. and these are the things that you are, you're not ever encouraged to do um, when you're deep in Christianity. It's like, we want you to think critically, but not really critically. <laughs> you know, it's a, a different kind of critical thinking. So it's ask the questions, but only if you arrive at the answers that I tell you to. Correct. It really is like a an abusive relationship, you know. It's like you're allowed to have your own voice, but not if it conflicts with mine. Otherwise, 
<laughs> you know, you're going to have a problem. So now that you're out of this abusive relationship and this belief system, what is one difference in your life from pre-conversion to post-conversion? Yeah, that's a good question. And I've actually thought about this. I was listening to a podcast the other day and they were saying, this person was saying, oh, his life was actually harder post-deconversion. And I was like, oh, that's interesting because I don't really feel any different. Oh, was that, I think I listened to that one, yeah. Graceful Atheist. Yeah, yeah. I think it was the yeah, Graceful Atheist uh, episode. Yeah. And I was like, oh, really? And I, I understood his point because he was talking about so many of the things that he had lost like community and all that stuff. So I definitely agree with that point. But to me, I, I feel like the biggest thing that's different or that I've gained was that I don't have to look for like a reason for everything. And um, I don't need a spiritual lesson or an object lesson, the spiritual significance in everything that happens in my life. I don't have to look for what's God trying to teach me in this situation. You know, I don't have to thank God for finding my keys or a parking space or that a sports team won. Like those are like trivial things. But at the same time, I, I can be happy about the things that are happy and I can somewhat take credit for them <laughs> if it's something that I did as opposed to having to give God the glory for it. And at the same time, when something bad happens, I don't have to now ask God, why did this happen? I can just basically say, man, this sucks and shit happens. And sometimes you just have to deal with it. And now what am I going to do with this bad thing that's happened? So there's an immense freedom, I think, in having the full spectrum of human emotions without having the umbrella of God over the whole thing. You know? Yeah, you had an extra layer processing in your brain of like everything you did had to go through this extra layer that was pretty much unnecessary and just taking up your processing power. Yeah. So now it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> that's, it, that's great. Yeah, it does feel like your brain, my brain works a little bit more efficiently. Yeah. So how about you? What's what's the something that's a, a difference pre and post for you? Oh, uh, yeah. It's that I feel like I'm actually living authentically and I am not adhering to anyone's belief system other than my own. And really, my belief system now is just anything that I can prove but or that is supported by evidence. I don't claim to know anything that's not supported by evidence. And that's just as simple as it gets. I do have a newfound emphasis and passion for freedom of thought and childhood indoctrination. So I was indoctrinated, you were indoctrinated, we both got out of it, but it took a long time. And uh, we should be teaching our kids how to think, not what to think, because our kids trust us. And we as parents, that's a big responsibility when we have these little people who look up to us and depend on us to keep them safe. We should not be telling them that things are true if we don't know that they're true. For sure. Yeah, the indoctrination thing is a really like, we're going to probably dig into this in another episode, but... I had never thought of it as indoctrination before until I realized you can't demand or impose a belief system on a kid who doesn't have the ability not to believe that because they because they're actually relying on their parents for survival. I can't I could have never told my kid my parents at 10 years old, "Hey, I don't believe in God anymore and I don't want to go to church because they were like, "Oh no, you're under our roof, our rules. So I can't, I couldn't have changed my belief system at 10 years no, old. No, you didn't have a choice. Yeah, you don't have a choice. And when you don't have a choice, that's not a choice. That's indoctrination and abuse. Like, so. Have you read The God Delusion? I started reading that and I actually have never finished it. And I actually use that as a badge of honor when I talk to people because a lot of people think that when you deconvert, the first thing you do is run to Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens as your – and that's how you became an atheist. You read those atheist books. So <laughs> I've actually kind of stayed away from some of the atheist quote-unquote books 
I mean, I can read them now, obviously, but I don't want them to be used against me as the reason. Oh, for I my, see. Like that's the reason. Yeah. Yeah. The reason <laughs> for my deconversion was was the God delusion. But well, he has he has a chapter in there about uh, childhood indoctrination. And the point he makes is that there is no Christian child. There is no Muslim child. There's only a child of Muslim parents. There's only a child of Christian parents. And that made so much sense to me. I, I had never really heard it phrased that way, but that really stuck with me after I read that. But you're right. Children can't be anything. They're just kids. They're basically getting imprinted on by their parents. And you know, until you get to a certain age, you can't really do anything outside of that imprint. But so- You've been through a, a, a long, somewhat arduous um, deconstruction journey. I mean, yours has been even longer than mine because you felt like you were faking it your whole life. So that's yeah. that's a very interesting thing that uh, we'll get into in future episodes. But what's one thing you would want to share with somebody who's in whatever stage of their deconstruction journey, whether at the beginning, they're almost all the way out, if that's such a thing? Um, what's something you would share yeah, I would say get out of the echo chamber first and foremost. You've been in an echo chamber your whole life. It's time to step outside of it and see what else is out there because you're never going to find the truth if you're stuck in that chamber. And the other thing is just totally disregard faith. Faith is just choosing to believe in something even if there's no evidence or or in the presence of contrary evidence. Faith is not a valid path to truth. And it should not be used for any belief. So that that's my advice is is remove faith from the equation and get out of the echo chamber. Those are two really important, especially the faith thing. I've been thinking about that too, that faith is just, uh, it's just something that you use to explain away something you can't explain. You have no proof for it. So you just say, well, I have faith that it's true. But you would never use that in any other area of your life. <laughs> like, No, never. You just wouldn't. So, well, for me, I think the biggest thing is that you're not alone in this process. There's thousands, maybe millions of people that are going through some stage of this journey just like you are. And when you leave the church, when you leave Christianity, depending on you know where you are, you feel alone at first. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of maybe ostracization from your family, from your church, from your friends. You find out that your friends weren't really your friends because now you believe different than them. So finding a community of people that are now like-minded is a huge benefit. So what I would say to someone is you're not alone in your process and find people that you can connect with. There's tons of online communities. I mean, that's how you and I met was an online community. And once you start to meet people that are in the same place as you or that are further along, it all starts to feel much more normal, <laughs> you know, because it's not like so foreign and so abstract. You start to say, oh, there's concrete reasons for why I feel the way I feel right now. And then you can get the proof and the evidence that what you feel and what you don't want to believe anymore is actually justified. I think that's great advice because I personally, I don't know any other person besides myself who has deconverted from Christianity. I don't know. Do you? Um, do you know anybody in your life? I don't think I do. I think there's some people like that I now interact with online when I've posted on my personal page something that's not super anti-Christian, but it's like challenging or controversial. I'll see a couple people from my past and they'll like it or they'll comment on it. And I'm like, oh, I wonder where they are in that journey. Mm -hmm. And some of them I reached out to and said, hey, and some of them I've sent my story to and said, hey, this is what I've been going through. And this is why I responded this way on your post. Um, so I have found some people that are in various stages of it. 
I can't think of anybody specifically that's like, yeah, I'm out completely now. It'd be awesome if I did. But there's so many people in these Facebook groups and these um, chat groups that I'm not sure I need people that I know. It'd be cool, but, <laughs> you know. Right. But since we don't have people in our real lives that we know who we can commiserate with, you're right. It is a really good resource to have the Facebook groups and to have people from all walks of life who can help you and you can help them and have friends, basically, who are in the same situation as you. Yeah, it's definitely a, a nice thing to find community. That's something that I think is innate to human nature is to want community. So you don't have that with Christians anymore. You don't have it with the church, but you can still find it. And that's definitely a good thing. So, Or you can find it with your yo-yo friends. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. All right. Well, I think um, we're going to wrap this one up. It was a fun technical beginning and hopefully it all works out. When you guys hear this, you'll know that a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and clicking on oh and my off gosh on the, the mics the mics you know we bought these cool fancy mics so we could be professional and then they just slapped us in the face so <laughs> hopefully we've slapped them back and um yeah so we're gonna go ahead and wrap this up this has been the flawed theology podcast i'm phil and i'm Susie. Tune in next time, where we will continue to tackle the question, if your theology were wrong, wouldn't you want to know? The theme music is The Beauty of Authenticity by One Man Book, and we will have the links to both Susie and our, my blog in the show notes, as well as links to the podcast website and where you can find this episode. So thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. And I'm <laughs> Oh, this is hilarious. Sorry. <laughs> it's Gigglefest 2000. We'll be editing this whole chunk out. Or maybe we should put it in. Or maybe we should. It's kind of fun. Mm -hmm.